I'm Matt Smock from Northern Michigan University Center for Teaching and Learning. And of course, we've got Mark Boucher from the Settle. Is that how you say it? CTAL. 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 Center for Engaged at, Teaching and Learning. At uh, Lake State. Unfortunately, our, 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 the third prong in our triangle of brilliance, um, <laughs> um, Mike Meyer can't join us today from Michigan Tech. Um, but welcome to our latest in our UPTLC virtual workshop series. Um, today we've got two sessions um, that have one thing in common, that they're, they're given in Zoom and they're both about Zoom. So I think most of us have probably been using Zooms sometimes very successfully, sometimes with lots of challenges for at least the last six months. And so we're all real interested to hear about the insights our speakers have for us today. Um, before I introduce our first speaker, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, so we're gonna, as I said, have two speakers and then we're gonna have breakout rooms for the last section of time. And so as you're listening to the speakers, um, there'll only be time for you to go into one breakout room for Q&A. So decide which of the breakout rooms you would like to go into and then you can go and rename yourself in Zoom and if you want to go into the breakout room for Isaac, put an I in front of your name, similar to how there's a C in front of my name in this screenshot. And if you want to go into Russ's, put an R in front of your name. And then Mark, our expert breakout room man, will assign you to the right room. So without... Oh, to, oh, and also before we forget, one more bit of housekeeping. Don't forget, if you haven't already signed up, that we have one more of these coming up yet this semester. And my other screen froze. Uh, here we go. It is Wednesday, November 4th, when we'll have uh, Jody Lynn Rebeck from Algoma talk about the healthy professor incorporating practices of well being to teach fully and engage students meaningfully and Christy Hartline from Northern dealing with distressed students. So those will be very timely topics as the end of the semester approaches. But first today, I'm happy to turn the mic over to Isaac Wiedig from MTU, Collaborative Group Testing Implemented Online Using Zoom. Take it away, Isaac. All right, thank you, Matt. Let me um, see if I can share my screen here. All right, can everybody hear me okay then? You can see my, my slides here. Looks and sounds great. Okay, perfect. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to, to be here today and uh, get to share some of the work and some of the experiences that um, myself as well as my advisor, Dr. Stephen Elmer, uh, have gathered in the last few months of transitioning into remote instruction. Um, so I'm a PhD student in the Department of Kinesiology and Integrative Physiology at Michigan Tech. And um, so today what I'm going to be focusing on is collaborative group testing uh, implemented online using Zoom. So the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, strongly recommends that science be taught as science is practiced. Uh, and an essential part of scientific inquiry is collaboration. So science is carried out socially uh, in groups through discussion, debate, 
uh, hearing and integrating different points of views and perspectives. And so as educators, um, as we're educating the next generation of scientific thinkers, um, it's important for us to ask ourselves, are we encouraging collaboration in our classroom? And so here's a, a picture of a pretty traditional lecture hall. And you can see just by the design of this classroom, um, it doesn't do a great job of promoting collaboration or uh, group work between students. Uh, and so it's really important, particularly in this type of classroom, to have uh, activities uh, that you can implement within the classroom strategically to get students to engage in that collaborative work and that discussion. There's the next slide, okay. Uh, here's a picture then of a more active learning centered classroom. So the students are, are kind of grouped together, facing each other. Uh, and a classroom like this, you know, does a better job um, of promoting that group work. And we know that, you know, the synthesis of new ideas requires this discussion, this debate uh, and constructivism. So the idea that knowledge is constructed and that students take their previous experiences and their perceptions uh, and by interacting with the world around them, and particularly um, through social interaction with peers, as well as the instructors, then they can construct new knowledge. Um, so this is a really critical part of, of learning and getting our students um, to gain new knowledge. And so it's something we need to try to implement in the classroom. Uh, so one way that collaborative group work can be implemented is through this uh, two-step exam process called collaborative group testing. So with collaborative group testing, uh, students first take an exam individually by themselves, and then immediately afterwards, they take the same exam uh, in a small group of students, about three to five, and they're instructed to work collaboratively through that exam. And then at the end, we can compile a composite score, which is typically about 80% of the individual score uh, and 20% of their group score. So in the literature, uh, collaborative group testing has been shown to enhance uh, student learning. So here is some data from Rao et al. And we can see in the graphs down here, uh, students score significantly higher on the group exam compared to the individual exam. And they score higher on a range of different question types. So fill in the blanks, uh, multiple choice, essay, as well as true false. So we know that students are able to achieve a higher level of knowledge uh, with a group exam versus uh, the individual exam. Uh, but one of the biggest uh, benefits of collaborative group testing is that students are learning at the same time that they're being assessed. So collaborative testing allows you to get this kind of two for one benefit uh, where you're assessing your students, but you're also giving them a valuable learning opportunity for them to work in these groups, uh, discuss and learn from each other. Uh, another benefit is the students can receive immediate feedback on how they performed. So they go from you know, the individual exam into the group exam where then they can discuss uh, their answers and their thinking that they had on the individual exam and get feedback from the peers in the group. It's also a great way to motivate students to engage in discussion, debate, and peer instruction. So it's, it's sort of like a, a high stakes situation where you know, you're giving a student an exam, they want to do well, and so it's really good at motivating them to, to engage in that discussion to try to figure out the correct answers. It also helps to reduce exam anxiety. So in the literature, we see that students tend to rate uh, collaborative testing as less stressful than traditional methods, uh, and they also tend to just prefer collaborative testing uh, over traditional methods as well. 
Uh, it has been shown to uh, benefit both lower achieving and higher achieving students. So the lower achieving students benefit by receiving explanation from their peers, while the higher achieving students uh, benefit by practicing teaching uh, and instructing their peers. Um, so here's a short video, I hope this plays on here, um, of a collaborative group exam that we did in our department in one of our classes. Um, and you can see there's a, a really high level of, of discussion, a lot of talking going on, and a lot of smiles on faces. So typically you give an individual exam, students aren't smiling, they don't seem to be having fun. Um, so this is a little bit different, so I'll play this video for you so you can kind of see what it looks like. <laughs> Oops, see if I can get off this slide now. There we go. So with our shift um, to remote instruction due to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, trying to recreate that situation where we have uh, collaborative group work going on is a little bit more difficult. Um, and you have to be a little bit more creative in an online classroom with activities that you can use to get students um, to engage in, in discussions, active learning. And so previous to shifting to remote instruction, uh, we had been implementing um, these collaborative group testings in person. And during the shift, uh, we wanted to see if we could adapt the collaborative group testing to an online setting. And so the, the purpose of our work, uh, we wanted to collect some data on some of the classes that we were teaching and ultimately aim to answer these three main questions. Uh, so the first one, can collaborative group testing be implemented online using Zoom breakout rooms? And so like was mentioned earlier, we're all very familiar with Zoom at this point um, and the feature of the breakout rooms where you can take students, um, send them to a private room where they can kind of talk amongst one another. Uh, and we kind of thought that this would be a viable way to uh, implement these group tests online. Another question we want to answer is, does this online format offer the same benefit as in person? So if we, if we administer these tests online, do we see the same level of discussion and collaboration between students? Uh, does it have the same effect on the exam scores? Do they score better as a group than an individual? And then lastly, we wanted to look at what are the students' perceptions around uh, this online format? Uh, do they still feel that it is um, you know, less stressful? Do they think that it's a positive uh, learning experience? So in order to answer these questions, um, we took four sections uh, of an introductory kinesiology class that Dr. Elmer and myself uh, have taught. And in each one of these uh, sections, the students took three exams throughout the course of the semester. And down here during the spring 2020 semester is when we made the shift to remote instruction. So you can see that um, previous to that point, all of the exams uh, were taken in person. And then for the spring 2020 section, the first two exams were in person and the third was online. Uh, the summer section was offered completely remotely and all three exams uh, were taken online. So for each of the exams uh, in all of the sections that we looked at, uh, all of the tests were, were delivered using the collaborative group testing format. So again, they took the individual exam, they were given about 40 to 50 minutes to do so, 
And then immediately after they were put into groups of three to five and allowed to work collaboratively on the same exam for about 20 to 30 minutes. And then we calculated a composite score. Uh, the exam format was similar for all the exams uh, across the different sections. Uh, we utilized 25 total questions, 10 multiple choice, 10 matching and fill in the blank, uh, three short answer and two essay. So for the individual, they had about you know, two minutes per question for the group, they were at about one minute per question. Uh, and again, in administering the online format of the test, uh, we utilized the breakout room feature in Zoom and we manually assigned students to the breakout rooms and then instructed them to work collaboratively to complete the exam. So in analyzing this data, uh, we looked at the individual group and the composite scores for all of the exams across each section. We also looked at the mean scores of the in-person exams, as well as the mean scores of the online exams so that we could compare those scores uh, between the in-person and the online format. And then we also looked at the mean scores uh, across the different years uh, of the class sections, so 2018, 19, and 20. And then lastly, we wanted to look at student perceptions uh, surrounding the online format. So for the two classes that took uh, the online uh, collaborative group test, which was the spring 2020 and the summer 2020, uh, we had them fill out an 11 question survey at the end of the semester, kind of asking them about uh, their thoughts on the online uh, format. All right, so to the results. So here we're looking at um, the average individual composite and group score uh, for the in-class versus the online exams. And so we had uh, eight total in-class exams and four online exams. So here we're looking at the average of the eight and the four uh, exams in class and online. We didn't run any stats on this data for some technical reasons. Um, but if we kind of eyeball the data here, we can see pretty similar exam scores uh, for the individual composite and the group uh, for the online and the in-class. So not a big difference. It seems like um, the online format had a very similar effect on the exam scores. Next, we wanted to kind of zoom in and highlight just uh, the exam scores for the four online exams. And here we ran a t-test and found that um, the group exams were significantly higher than the individual exam scores. And so we can see the means here. So the mean of the individual was about 80%. Um, the mean of the group was about 98%. So you can see on average, they increased their exam score from the individual to the group by about 18%. And then lastly, we just wanted to look at the exam scores across the different years. Um, and we mostly did this just to kind of make sure that 2020 was, was in the ballpark. Um, 2020 is one of those years that you never know what's going to happen. So we wanted to make sure things were, were kind of looking consistent. And if we kind of look at the data here again, we see pretty similar individual composite and group scores between each of the three years. Uh, all right, so the student perceptions. So again, this is the 11 question survey that we gave to all the students who took the collaborative group exam with the online format. And just to highlight a few of uh, these questions, 92% of the students strongly agreed that the online group testing emphasized collaboration. 67% uh, strongly agreed that the testing format was less stressful than the traditional method. 
83% of the students strongly agreed that the online group testing allowed them to go beyond their previous level of knowledge. And then lastly, 100% of the students that we surveyed uh, recommended that the instructor implement a group online exam for the course in the future. So we had one section that took um, the collaborative group exam both in person and online. And so we wanted to kind of get an idea of how the students thought the in-person compared to the online. So they got two special questions on their survey uh, comparing the two. So we can see here 67% of the students strongly agreed that the level of interaction with group members during the online exam was similar to that experience during the in-class exam. And 78% strongly agreed that the overall experience of the online exam was similar to the group exam. So overall, what we found is that um, online collaborative group testing is feasible. So we were able to administer the collaborative group testing online with Zoom um, with no major issues. Everything ran pretty smoothly. Um, we found that the Zoom breakout rooms provided a viable way to facilitate student collaboration. And so based on the students' perceptions, it appeared that the discussion in the in-class versus the online was very similar and that the collaboration was similar. We also found similar effects um, be on the exam scores. So the individual and group exams uh, from the online to the in-person. So they had a, a similar increase in the percentage that they scored on the group exam. And the students favorably perceived the online collaborative group testing. So again, students felt it was less stressful and all the students, 100% of them recommended that we use it again in the future. Um, one of the, the biggest limitations to our data that we collected here is we only had 12 students that took the online exam. Um, so it's not a really big, big sample size to pull from. So we can't really draw any strong conclusions, but as a proof of concept and kind of a pilot study, um, you know, we can see that this is possible to do. We can, you know, use the Zoom breakout rooms, collaborative group testing to get students to engage in discussion in this collaborative work. Um, and it may be useful for other forms of assessment as well. So we used it for exams carried out three times a semester. Um, you know, it could be used for, you know, weekly quizzes. It could be used for in-class assignments. Um, but it's a viable approach that you could use um, for any type of assessment to get this collaborative approach out of the students. So these are a few of the, the limitations and challenges of, that are just inherent to Zoom, um, which are, we've probably all kind of figured out at this point with using Zoom so much. Um, but one of the hard things during the collaborative group test online is addressing student questions. So normally in the classroom, you know, you would have all of the groups working on the collaborative test in front of you. Um, you know, and you can, if somebody has a question or a group has a question, they raise their hand, you go over to them. It's pretty easy to address questions. Here, you have to, as the instructor, jump from room to room in order to see if there are questions. Um, as far as I know, there's no way to be in the main room and have the breakout room kind of raise their hand or let you know that they have a question. So if anybody has any good ideas, um, let me know. Uh, also assessing the level of discussion. So at least for me, this is what I found and maybe many of us, when we send students to breakout rooms um, and then we jump into their breakout room, when they notice that you're there, they kind of freeze over and they get a little bit scared that you're listening in on them. And so it's hard to really catch the discussion kind of in its natural state. 
So I don't know if there is a, possibly a way you can record what's going on in breakout rooms or kind of see how the level of discussion is because um, you want to make sure students are actually working together. Um, you, know, you don't want them to just each be filling out the group exam on their own. You kind of want them to be discussing. And then lastly, thing we didn't really have any difficulties with, um, very minimal in, in our testing of this, just technical difficulties as far as like internet connection, um, audio. And these are things that you just would want to probably pay attention to if you're going to implement an online group exam is make sure your students have audio that works so they're able to communicate with the group, make sure that they're in a place where they have a you know, stable internet connection. There's a few things to think about. Um, a, a few other additional lessons that we learned through just kind of practically implementing um, this collaborative online group test. Make sure that your questions are um, in the same order when you give the group exam. So this was a mistake I made the first time that I administered the exam. I gave them the group exam and their question order was shuffled for all the students. And so within their group, they had to kind of find the question they were working on in their exams, which made things tedious and uh, kind of stressful on them. Also just uh, carefully planning the questions and the difficulty. So keep in mind that it's a, it's a collaborative test, so you can make the test more difficult than it normally would be. Um, you know, you don't want the students to score 100% on the individual exam. You probably want them to score a little bit lower so that they have room for improvement um, and room to learn uh, when they go in to take the group exam. Uh, another thing, and this kind of this kind of deals with the questions, addressing student questions, is not you probably don't want to interrupt students too frequently. Um, at least for me, I felt like when I was jumping from room to room, um, I was you know jump, jumping in the room too frequently, and I felt like I was interrupting them and, and kind of bugging them. Um, so it might be a good idea to kind of plan if that's the way that you're going to see if class if groups have questions. Maybe say, hey, I'm going to try to hit each group twice during the exam uh, so that you're not spending too much time jumping around and, and kind of interrupting the discussion. Uh, and then lastly, this is just something I prefer. And I know um, as instructors, when we get on Zoom and none of our students have their video on, it's like kind of weird, like we're talking to ourselves. Um, so I know, you know, when you're having a discussion, you can at least make it a little more personal online, at least if you have your video on. So it's probably good to encourage students to, to turn the video on for the collaborative group exam. Um, but these are just some, some lessons that we kind of learned and things that we thought might be helpful as you think about implementing this. Um, so lastly, just to kind of wrap things up here, um, we found that collaborative group testing can be successfully carried out online using the Zoom breakout rooms. Um, and this may be a really beneficial way for you to incorporate some collaborative learning and some group work into a remote classroom. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for adding additional collaboration to classroom, this is a great way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. You can assess them while giving them this, this valuable learning experience. Uh, in, in the future, what we want to do is we continue with uh, remote instruction. We want to collect more data because we can kind of give more online collaborative group tests and then hopefully contribute to the literature as there isn't um, a whole lot right now on remote learning in, in general, um, particularly using Zoom and it's kind of the new tools we have. So hopefully contribute to the literature and give some new ideas. And uh, that's all I've got. All right. Well, thank you. That was, that was great, Isaac. 
Um, and we will have the breakout sessions after uh, where those who are in your group will ask you the follow-up questions. Um, now I am happy to uh, introduce uh, Lake State uh, psychology professor, uh, Russ Seawright, um, who will be talking about in defense of distance education, lessons learned from Zoom. And uh, I, think, I think we'll, we'll all be challenged a little bit in this, uh, in this actual discussion. So Ross, hopefully you're there now and able to share your screen. Um, my understanding is that Jody's there to help in case. All right, looks like you're good to go. Are you unmuted? Am I unmuted? All right. I can hear you, Ross. Wonderful, wonderful, and, wonderful. Let's give it a and, and one just final thing, Ross, before, before we go, um, I want to remind everybody to please indicate uh, which breakout session they would like by putting the letter of the speaker that you want to be in their breakout session. So if you want um, to join Isaacs, please rename yourself in Zoom with an I. And if you want to join Russ's, please rename yourself with an R in front of your name. Thank you. And Russ and Jody, you're all good to go. Set up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jerry. Um, yeah, I am a psychology faculty member, and I'm actually going to talk about a couple things. The, I want to talk about my own experience um, with Zoom, and I also want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, trends in uh, higher education. And I, I certainly appreciate I got to catch the end of the first presentation, and I certainly uh, appreciate the creativity. Um, it's always nice to have evidence-based for, for college teaching. We could, I think we could always use more evidence for what we are doing correctly and perhaps not doing so well. One of the things that I want to talk about is active learning has become the new theme oftentimes in higher education. And we're all encouraged to, as faculty, to have activities that uh, promote student engagement in the classroom. Now, one of the interesting issues here is that the research on active learning is actually pretty mixed. And when I was uh, putting together this presentation, I wanted to see what people had been writing about teaching on Zoom. And there are a few books now that have come out recently and one of the things I noticed was they were full of active learning and, and one big concern with shifting to Zoom is that the activities that people use in a classroom are some difficulties replicating those in Zoom. However, our first presenter was able to do so. Um, but one of the things I think is important to look at 
is what is active learning? And what is it being compared to? Um, typically, it is being compared to something called a traditional lecture. But active learning is multiple things, breakout rooms, minute papers, um, think, pair, share, uh, different types of student presentations, case studies, etc. So when uh, educators, and I put myself in a group, talk about the great superiority of active learning, I think we're putting a lot of things together. Um, and I'm going to uh, give you a little bit of um, some of the recent research on this. Here we go. So active learning, again, has been a range of activities and the research on it, it's probably been good research on it now for about 20, 25 years. Um, and here's the big question. Are active learning strategies better? Do students do better with active learning strategies? Um, do we know the answer to that? Not really. There's, there was a large scale review of this done about a year ago, and there was no clear, consistent evidence that active strategies were superior to traditional lectures when you looked at examination performance. Again, what we're calling active is pretty heterogeneous. Um, but when the good studies, the ones with control groups, particularly blinded control groups, uh, were examined, the active condition often did not do perform significantly better. However, even though Examination performance isn't necessarily better. Students do seem to have greater satisfaction when active learning techniques are used. But again, very few of them, very few of the studies look at randomly assigned groups. Now, one of the issues that I think we have to look at with active learning, and forgive me because I'm a clinical psychologist, but in the 1950s, there was a famous study that really electrified and kicked into gear the psychological community. And that was a study by a guy named H.J. Isink on psychotherapy. And Isink found that those who had therapy, psychotherapy, were not any better off at the end than those who did not. And the question became not so much does therapy work, but under what conditions, with what type of clients, um, with what type of therapist, um, is therapy or different approaches to therapy more or less effective? And here is an example. Um, think pair share is a very common practice. There was a study that was just reported earlier this year that noted that a high percentage of students, and this was in, these were the students surveyed in this study, reported particularly high levels of social anxiety. Now, it doesn't mean they had a clinical condition, social anxiety disorder, they just had symptoms. But those students reported significant discomfort 
in active learning courses. And one study even found that those, um, those students who were quite uncomfortable also did not perform as well academically. So again, think pair share may be good for some, but perhaps not good for all. And I'll, I'll give you a, another example from my own teaching experience. Um, some years ago, I taught at St. Louis University School of Medicine. And the medical school went to problem-based learning for the specialty courses that they would take, medical students would take in their third and fourth year, like neurology, for example. Um, I was involved teaching uh, family medicine. And we went all gung-ho on problem-based learning. And the students were, there was content they were supposed to get from these cases, but it was all case-based discussion. Um, and what they found was that in terms of exam performance, and these students have a pretty much a standardized exam that they have to take in each subject or specialty area, that when we went to problem-based learning, performance declined. So problem-based learning may be wonderful for encouraging critical thinking, critical thinking and some other things, but it may not get across the content that students need to have in particular areas. Here we go. So, now to the sort of autobiographical part. Um, I'm gonna talk some about my own experiences with Zoom, and I'm gonna start with a confession if there are any parents out there, I started my Zoom experience with what would only be called a bad attitude. Um, I was not very happy with it. My first experience was teaching high school students um, at about four or five high schools in this region through Zoom. We were all uh, meeting synchronously online via Zoom. And the first week, I will have to say, I was not very happy. I've had a number of years experience teaching asynchronously online for Lake State, um, but I hadn't done Zoom teaching synchronously. I will tell you though, with the kindness of Mr. Boucher and uh, Jody, and Gerilyn Narkowitz, who are kind enough to sit with me for about a month while I uh, learned how to do this, it got much better. And I will tell you, I told the students at the end, there were about 15 of them, I said, you know, this is one of the best experiences of teaching I have had in a long time. You guys reminded me why I do this. Well, last spring, as you all know, um, we got put into online teaching and learning rather abruptly. And my plan originally was to go asynchronous. I assumed that's what the students would want. So I was gonna record lectures for all my classes and have online exams, etc. similar to what I do when I teach online. Um, so, but one class I couldn't do this for, and it was a class where we have dual enrolled students and some of them are at high school. So I had to continue to do that part live. Um, and what was interesting was the students that I had in the classroom for the face-to-face -face 
version of the course, um, contacted me and said, we know you're doing these high school students. Can we be part of it as well? And that really caught me off guard. And so I switched after the first week to doing pretty much all synchronous uh, teaching experiences and recorded them. Now, I, again, you're going to have to forgive me for sounding like a psychologist, but I, I was sort of intrigued by this. And I thought, you know, at that time when things were in such an uproar, um, maybe the idea that there are some constancies, namely that you can find C. Wright rambling on about lifespan development on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 150, maybe there was some comfort in that. I don't know. I felt a little bit like a parent. Anyway, I also did record, and the reason I recorded was, as you may recall, it was pretty abrupt, and we had students who didn't necessarily have access to computers or to internet access, and again, I, I love living in the UP, but sometimes internet service is a little less than optimal. Um, so that's one of the reasons I recorded. So I'm, this is not going to be a high-tech discussion of Zoom because I'm not a high-tech guy, but I'm going to show you the kinds of, and talk with you about some of the things that uh, I experienced. First of all, I think it's essential, I had two screens. I, had, I went and bought this really big one, and I put the students up on that. And somebody who wrote an article in the New Yorker about Zoom called it the Hollywood Squares configuration. I think you probably have to be about my age to appreciate what that means. Um, and I um, have a headset with microphone and a camera with controls. Now, here's a little etiquette. Check the angle of your camera. Be sure the students see what you want them to see and be sure they don't see what you don't want them to see. You know, this gentleman's boxers are, are particularly attractive, but I don't think that that's what we would want students to see, nor the martini on the other side of the computer screen. Remember, they're seeing all. And don't eat. Only Jeff Bezos, when he's testifying before Congress, can eat on Zoom. The rest of us cannot, I'm sorry. Um, but it, people have said, if you want to pause, have a non-adult beverage, sip it thoughtfully, and then go back. Make sure your microphone is on, but be aware you can be a victim of the hot mic phenomenon that many of our politicians have. I put Ronald Reagan up there. Ronald Reagan famously, I think, was uh, at a, touring a defense facility and was uh, messing around with the equipment and said in jest, we will begin the bombing of the Soviet Union in 15 minutes. Uh, unfortunately, the microphone was on. He was not aware of it. Um, you may want your students to turn the microphone off except when they're speaking. I got to hear some uh, interesting noise from rather young children, uh, dogs barking, um, the UPS guy comes to the door. Um, those may all be things that may be a bit of a distraction. And I will tell you, if you don't have your microphone on and you see people on the screens doing these sort of gesticulations, they're not exercising, they're telling you, uh, we need to hear you. If you share your screen, be aware of what you're sharing. 
If you're doing a little shopping on eBay and you've got that tab up there, it's going to be visible. Okay? Uh, so if you're doing a little multitasking, be sure that you're be sure that you're presenting what you want to present. There was a faculty member in business at another institution um, who apparently liked adult sites. I won't, give, won't be any more explicit than that, and had the tab for the adult site up on his screen. Um, he is no longer teaching at that institution. Um, so be very careful. Um, you can do chats. You can do them one-on-one -on -one or as a whole class. Um, again, just be sure that if you're doing them, you're clear who's seeing them. There are, of course, Zoom backgrounds. A lot of us, I think, do this from our homes. Some people are concerned about privacy. Some people are concerned about the state of cleanliness and clutter in their homes. So you can use uh, backgrounds. They've got five or six that you can use. And if you want to get fancy and have this nifty study, looks like a British uh, drawing room, um, you can actually buy some or get some for free. But be sure that you look reasonably professional. Um, here are my strategies. And I agree with the previous presenter. In an ideal world, everybody needs to have their camera on. Like teaching face-to-face, -face, I rely a lot on nonverbals. So if somebody is grimacing or looks like they're genuinely puzzled, it really helps me to see that. It also helps like, oh man, these folks are, I am losing these people. It's time for a video uh, to liven things up. That is really important. I think to make this a more personal experience. Uh, and again, everybody uses a microphone because I, one of the things I do is I ask a lot of questions and sort of my style of teaching is here's some content, let's chat about it. Here's some more content, let's chat about it. Um, those who are not using microphones oftentimes will be um, doing it via text, but the people with microphones are gonna beat them to the punch in terms of answering the questions. So that's one of the reasons I like to have everybody on a microphone. Um, set yourself up in advance and test everything you're gonna use. I use videos, I use online links, and I use PowerPoint. Um, and I allowed myself a significant amount of time to, or like about a half hour before showtime, to make sure everything works. Um, be sure to use the computer sound which I, I have here, a little, little picture. Uh, mute your microphone until you're ready to talk with the students, um, particularly if one of your colleagues walks in and you're having some other gossipy conversation. Um, people who are, students who are, quote, early arrivals, you can put in a waiting room. But I'll tell you one of the things that I really liked about this, particularly when I was doing it with the high school kids. Um, after I got myself settled, everything worked, and I was comfortable, a lot of them would check in early and I would just chat with them. And it was really pretty interesting. For example, um, a couple of our students, our high school students from Mackinac Island. I've always been intrigued what it's like to live there year round. I learned a lot. We had some really nice conversations. And you really get to, I really felt like I got to know the students well from these, from, uh, these early check-ins. Um, 
I think this is pretty straightforward. This is basically the, the process of using PowerPoint and also making sure that you check the little box to use the computer sound, um, particularly if you're using um, video files, as I do. Some issues. Do you record or not? Um, I have been this semester of almost, I'm teaching classes face to face, but I do review sessions with students before exams, and I do oftentimes record those. These files are huge. Um, they take several hours to upload, so just be aware of that. Um, recording, I think also, if you're relying on that, removes the, obviously the fun part, the live component. I think it's probably ethical to let the people in your class know that you're recording. And as I mentioned before, internet access can be spotty. You do have some interesting intrusions. Um, I hope that an anthropologist studies the culture of Zoom someday, uh, because I've had some really interesting observations. It felt like I got to know my students much better, probably better than they would have liked. Um, in one session, um, somebody's eight-year-old little sister walked in and started watching abnormal psychology. And I was thinking, gee, you're probably never too young for abnormal psychology. Let's get started now. Um, we're, you know, looking for future students. We're recruiting. Um, in another situation I thought was funny, um, I think we must have been near towards the end of class, door open, and uh, a woman who I'm pretty sure was a student's mother was standing there in classic mother fashion with her arms folded, looking, giving that mother look that says, young lady, you left some dirty dishes in the sink. When are we going to be getting to those? Um, I got to meet some interesting pets and um, get to see some interesting household decor. Actually, when I do this from my office at home, I collect kids' toys from like 1950s and earlier. And so I sometimes will give a little tour before we start of my lunchbox collection. And they don't seem to be as thrilled with it as I am, but be that as it may. Um, so I really did find that I was really face-to-face -face with students in a way that I typically had not been before when I started this. And again, th this class, Lifespan Development, that I did with the high school students is usually in a kind of a large classroom setting with 70 or so students. And I really did feel like I got to know these students and I maintained some relationship with them afterwards. I do think there is something to seeing students in their natural environment. You know, we, we, one of the complaints about online education is it seems impersonal. But they're sitting there in their bedroom. How more, how more personal can one get? Um, that is certainly personal, and I think it gives you a different perspective on your students. Certainly be tolerant of interruptions, technical issues, and I do use this for office hours and advising. And in some respects, I think this can be more efficient, because if I'm doing this from home, like in the picture, I can be doing what I normally do in terms of preparing for class or writing or stuff like that, and then go teach the class or do advising, then go right back to it um, without having to move. So I think there's some advantage to that. You know, one of the things that we don't know is whether or not there is an upper limit on the number of students you can effectively teach this way. 
You know, there's research in primary and secondary education that says you get significant benefits of class sizes that are under 20. And then when you go above 20, um, there's no significant decrement until you get to 35. We don't really know anything like that for online education or for Zoom education. Um, so we don't know that. I think the other issue is equitable access. Um, I, again, did have students who were using their cell phones, and it's really, that does not work very well. But again, there is a digital divide, and not all of our students have access to computers. Um, so, I do think also it's going to be interesting to see what happens with professional conferences in the future, like we're doing right now, rather than traveling someplace, staying in a hotel, shelling out $1,000. Are professional conferences as we've known them, are they going to be gone? Interesting question. Anyway, that I'm afraid, or maybe thankfully, is it. So I am finished. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Russ. Uh, a lot of things to think about, and we will be able to talk about them in just, in just a minute. Um, I'll be assigning folks to the breakout rooms and uh, want to remind everybody that uh, Wednesday, November 4th is the final in this semester's UPTLC virtual workshops. Jody Rebick and Christina Hartline, um, Algoma and Northern will be finishing off our um, series for this semester. We'll be back in spring. And if anybody wants to suggest um, some more topics, we do have some slots that are still open. And luckily, you'll be able to see Russ again in spring, not once, but twice, if he's still willing to do it. So hopefully, <laughs> so, um, all right. So uh, I just want to ask everybody to, all right, we're seeing some progress here. And thanks again for uh, joining us today. I'll be putting us in the breakout rooms to follow up with our speakers. I'm going to do that in just a second. I'm going to stop the recording. So thanks everybody for this week.